Since 1998, Children's Health Watch has worked to promote equity through our research and advocacy. As we embark on our 25th year bringing evidence from the front lines of healthcare to inform policies, we see our anniversary as something more than a milestone. We see this as an opportunity to reaffirm our commitment to achieving health equity for young children and their families by advancing research to transform policy. We invite you to join us on this journey. Our equity series this year, Pathways to Equity, Reflect, Research, Respond, will take the form of a three-part podcast series and will identify ways to engender and support equity for young children and their families. We hope this series will empower you, whether you're a policymaker, advocate, researcher, parent, or someone who just cares deeply about children, to champion equity in all its forms and advance Children's Health Watch research as a tool to transform policy and improve the health and development of children, our collective future. So continue listening to hear episode one of our equity podcast titled Children's Health Watch, How It Started, How It's Going, with Children's Health Watch Executive Director, Dr. Stephanie Edinger de Cuba, founder, Dr. Deborah A. Frank, co-lead principal investigator and Boston site principal investigator, Dr. Megan Sandal, co-lead principal investigator and Minneapolis site principal investigator, Dr. Diana Cutts, and me, Engagement, Equity, and Inclusion Associate, Sherlyn Kantav, as we discuss the origins of Children's Health Watch's work and what drives our mission. My name is Deborah Frank. I am the Professor of Child Health and Well-Being at Boston University School of Medicine, um, and I was one of the founding uh, principal investigators of Children's Health Watch, and still am an investigator. Great. I'm Megan Sandal. I'm a professor at BU School of Medicine and a co-lead principal investigator with Children's Health Watch, and I direct the Boston site. I'm Stephanie Edinger de Cuba. I'm the executive director of Children's Health Watch and a research associate professor at Boston University School of Public Health, School of Medicine. Hi, I'm Sterling Kantanev. I'm the Engagement, Equity, and Inclusion Associate here at Children's Health Watch. And I'm Diana Cutts. I'm a pediatrician at Hennepin County Medical Center and associate professor of pediatrics at the university there, as well as a founding member of Children's Health Watch and the current site principal investigator in Minneapolis. All right, Debbie, why don't you lead us off? Um, you often talk about how public policies are written on the bodies of babies. Can you talk to us about when Children's Health Watch was starting, uh, what the policy environment was in 1998, and how it was impacting? All of the initial principal investigators of Children's Health Watch were running grow clinics. Mm-hmm basically for children who anywhere else in the world would not have been called failure to thrive. We had seen a lot of children and we had heard a lot of stories. And then came in PUARA, the Personal Work and Responsibility Act. It's cut a great many people uh, off income support and off food stamps. Mm -hmm. And there was a meeting pulled together by Share Our Strength Mm -hmm. in Washington of all the people who were running grow clinics. They um, had some very good facilitators. After they got us away from obsessing about should we be feeding these children extra zinc and things like that, uh, we started talking about how scared we were for our patients. And we had some tragedies already. There was a child with sickle cell disease at Boston Medical who died because her mother had to be out job hunting and she was left in the care of a 14-year-old 
who didn't know how to respond to a, to a fever. And we were just horrified and we were upset. What should we do about it? And meanwhile, there was something called the Mass Nutrition Survey, which got kicked off when uh, I inadvertently <laughs> spoke, to, I didn't inadvertently, I just unwisely, <laughs> um, <laughs> spoke to a reporter about how I was actually seeing kids who'd been following a growth clinic who'd been doing okay, and who then went wango, fell off. A child who had been on WIC was cut off because they were, quote, too healthy at age two. Mm-hmm. And they come to growth clinic six months later, having not gained an ounce since they were cut. And so I was really mad. So I had talked to somebody with some anecdotes without identifiers, and Chet Atkins, who was the Ways and Means uh, chair of the house in Massachusetts, called up the agency and said, are there really? And I said, oh, but give us some money, we'll find out. And so they started the Mass Nutrition Survey, and one of the sites was uh, Boston Medical Center. It turned out of all the sites in the state, Boston Medical Center had the highest rates of severely underweight kids. And so I knew how to do the surveillance in the ER from having done that. And we all had all these stories and were foaming at the mouth. And I think it was Billy Shore who said, why don't you guys get together and do something? What do we do? What are your skills? We're all doctors, we're all clinicians. Mm-hmm. And we're all trained to do uh, epidemiologic research. This isn't theoretical. These numbers all have names and faces. So we brainstormed for a while, and I don't know if Diana remembers more about this, and decided that we would have what we, at the time, termed Children's Sentinel Nutrition Assessment Program, CSNAP. (laughs) The idea that you ought to be, if you want to know changes rapidly in a public health condition, the best way to do it is to start counting where people are differentially showing up. And in fact, this is already being used in uh, substance use research by just counting overdoses in the ER. The Sentinel model was out there. So we thought about it and we decided that the kids in our pediatric emergency rooms, particularly were sentinel patients, because unlike any other study which had looked at kids in WIC or kids at Head Start, we looked at kids who also wanted systems. And because, you know, uh, people show up when they're desperate and their little kid is sick. So we started the monitoring our ERs, and that of course took a lot of negotiation and discussion, and what do we do when we find an underweight kid? Because interestingly enough, the ER docs were often so overwhelmed that they didn't notice. Mm-hmm. And we weighed and measured every kid, and it wasn't they weren't taking good care of the kid, but that was just so far down on problems they were trying to mm-hmm. deal with. So we started collecting data, and in those days, when I think about it, it was like dinosaur. We had a paper and pencil survey. We knew from the beginning we had to be bilingual because we were all serving large proportions of Spanish immigrants, and also in Minneapolis, uh, Somalis. Uh, not so many other kinds here, but that changed. And we would have interviewers, many of whom were pre-med students, you know, on work study or hanging out in the ER, talking to people, filling in these things. And then they had to be hand zero, and then UPS or FedEx or something to the data coordinating center, which is now called BDAC. So this was obviously a pretty laborious process. And I don't know how we ever got anything done. And, uh, and, and we were not, I guess I would say, subspecial. The energy was from the clinical leadership, uh, John Cook, 
who was one of the developers of the Household Food and Security Scale, which had just that minute been released. Before that, there were other scales, and he came and talked with us, and we decided we wanted to do it here rather than just because there were some other scales that were more primitive. And but we didn't have any dedicated fundraiser. Um, we didn't have any dedicated community outreach. We were all known in the communities because we took care of people, and we were very fortunate that two large foundations, Kellogg and Share Our Strength, funded the first few years of our work. And of course, in my naivete. When we started, I got to the Socratic fallacy that people don't knowingly do evil, and I really believed it. And I thought, okay, we're going to do this for three years, and we're going to show people that blocking access to family support programs makes their kids sick and malnourished. And then they're going to say, oh my gracious, <laughs> and they're going to rush out. And maybe we thought reverse Pora, not. And the other thing that we learned. Both partly as clinicians, just listening to people, but also from our young colleagues talking to people in the ER, is that food insecurity was indeed a sentinel indicator, meaning something that showed up early in response to、uh, policy and social changes. But it was a sentinel indicator of lots of other. Now I think they'd be called what social drivers of health. We didn't have that word. I never、mm -hmm. heard that word. That was some of the. Some of the first really rigorous research using the household food insecurity. Yeah, absolutely. And we had、really、we had because we were in ER, we generated large samples very quickly,、yeah. and we got at right away at the kids who weren't in any national surveys. And most people don't see young kids except their parents and their doctors or their health providers. And young kids, of course, are the total canaries because they're growing. So even brief deprivation shows up. Very quickly, so we learn from our patients and about other things, particularly housing and energy insecurity. What our food bank colleagues called heat or eat, when which I stumbled over, I had no idea what was going on, and I happened to be talking to some food bank folk trying to probably handle for peanut butter or something. And I said, "What do you make of this?" Because I was also running a clinic and running a food pantry for the clinic, and so on. And they said, "Oh, that's heat or eat." I said, "Well." So they said, "Oh yeah, we see this." And so, not only did we realize we had to keep going, but we had to expand our lens as to what was、um, stunting our babies.、Um, so that's that's how we. And then we've been just very fortunate. We've had a number of、uh, incredible individual philanthropists who kept our work going, and we've had a number of incredible people. Often, people came in to do one job. And ended up doing four other jobs, involving pulling, pulling us here and pulling us there, or pushing or whatever. And took I didn't think we needed a website. I never looked at a website. Why would anybody want to? But obviously, we needed a website because I. So that that's when I was interviewing for the job. I looked at the original website, and I wasn't sure if it was a real group or not. Yeah, pretty rudimentary. Probably one of our young artists. I always assumed that any young person had had expertise, and they said, "Oh, I can do that. Oh, please do." It was like somebody with a balloon. Oh, really? <laughs> Diane, I wonder if you talk about some of the ways that really well, and you know, some of the unique contributions that Children's Health Watch has.、Well, ways that we've, you know, linked even early on to、yeah. policies that people weren't thinking about as health policies. Yeah, yeah. I I think Debbie's alluded to a couple of things that were really churning at the time. Policy was churning, and we were frightened. About its impact on 
especially really young kids health the little kids the babies we were seeing and i think the measurement of hunger which was the term we used at that point hunger not a term we really use anymore we use food insecurity and so the measurement of that was churning and i think as we built the infrastructure and what we thought we were going to do we were really conscious about how do we make these youngest kids visible because they're so invisible and they don't vote and also i think the other piece was how do we take the experience at the front line of clinical care which is where we were and narrow that distance to policy because that distance was way too far and we felt like we could play a really unique role in bringing the points together more effectively influence policy so i i think that was the mindset we had and was our guiding light and it still is it still is, it still is. yeah i wonder if you both of you could comment a little bit. It feels a little bit like Back to the Future right now, like where we are policy-wise and the way that how things are different, obviously, but yeah. maybe, and then also how the policy environments are somewhat the same, thinking particularly around cash assistance and yeah. thinking on that. I think, I don't know. I feel like we have seen a lot of movement in various directions at various times. One of the things that has kept us going is our awareness that we can see trends. Yeah. That although we look at things in slices of time, that now our continuity allows us to compare one slice in time with another slice in time and a policy in the middle. And that's been a unique contribution and one that we can do in pretty fast order. Right. Uh, because of our methodology. It's been a way in which we've been able to hopefully track the way our political environment translates into policy and how that then impacts families with young kids. When we started, I don't think people realized hunger was a health issue or an educational issue. They thought it was a sentimental issue, so you sent yeah. the Boy Scouts out once a year to collect canned beans and didn't realize it was a medical issue at all. And then yeah. a couple of things strike me. First of all, when we spoke out about it, initially people were stunned that children in America were hungry. And you couldn't necessarily see it. It was an invisible threat, although we certainly saw it in our clinics, but in the body of a kid. But then when you started talking to people, it was much more prevalent. So now everybody knows it and they say, eh, sort of it's like background, which is horrifying. The other thing I think is a big difference right now is we had proof of efficacy of how to stop this. Mm -hmm. And then it went away. Right. We had the child tax credit and we had the boost in SNAP, SNAP. and mm -hmm. access to SNAP, access to WIC, and Pinko. Child poverty went down, Wango. Food insecurity and families with little kids went down, Wango. And you'd think people would say, oh, wow. But then they said, people weren't dying like flies of COVID anymore. I guess we'll just stop. Yeah. And, which is just horrifying. And so I looked the numbers nationally. When we started, child poverty was 16.9 percent. In 2021, when the height of the, all the interventions, it was 5.2 percent. Mm -hmm. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're back up to 21 percent. Mm -hmm. And so it just, but the, I was trying to explain this once to a very tremendously good philanthropist about 
why we have to keep going and why we can't just say we've got these gazillion and why it's so important to be up to date because most of the national surveys certainly once it's actually measured children have hands on the bodies of babies are two years out of date all Mm -hmm. so they don't tell you what last month's policy is going to be doing to children next month they tell you and i explained it to her she was into environmentalism and she said well i get it it saves the bay I mean, save the bay. Every month, you go down to the bay and you take a sample of the water. Right. Yeah. And you measure how polluted it is and how contaminated it is. And it's a dynamic problem you're measuring, and you have a dynamic monitoring solution. I said, only we're trying to save the baby. But so that'd be, and you're good. (laughs) Yeah. I do think to that point, I think we've gotten better at not just having the knowledge, but building the strategy and the political will. That Better. has been a huge, I think, area where, it used, as you said, in the beginning you thought, oh, we'll just build the data and everything will be fine. And it's no, we have to be a lot more savvy about how do we communicate the messaging? How do we that's build the political the will? And we I didn't think, know how to communicate it. Yeah. I think that has been a true evolution for us as a research group, that we thought if we get it published in the medical literature, it will make impact and we learned pretty quickly that was not the case and we better yes necessary but insufficient and i think we're still learning yeah yeah Yeah. i'm gonna bring you in and uh, talk about this because it's a great segue thinking about strategy and communications and some of the ways that our strategy has shifted over the last several years, particularly with you know really putting equity at the center of our work. I wonder if you could talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I think I wasn't here at the beginning of Children's Health Watch, but it's been a long time. Obviously, equity has always been a priority for us, but I think a few years ago, we really wanted to be even more intentional mm-hmm. and not only take a look inward, but how are we sharing information through an equity lens. And as a group, back in 2018, we decided to work with Community Change Inc., an organization here in Boston that helps organizations set their priorities around equity and equality. And that, as with most diversity work, involved readings and coming together as a group and having really honest discussions, which can be difficult, right? Talking about race, racism, that's really difficult. But we were up for the task and up for doing that work and having those internal discussions and really being strategic about like, where are the gaps in our work in terms of equity and how can we address those? And not only we as an internal group, as staff and leadership did this work, but we involved our advisory board. And we really wanted to come at it from all angles and really involve all areas of our work. So from the way that we do our interviews, what kind of questions are we asking? Are we asking questions that get to experiences of discrimination, for example, which is something that I feel a lot of other places do not bother tracking or even asking about, right? Like, how are you doing? What are your symptoms? Hey, when was the last time you felt discriminated against? Who's going to even think to ask that kind of question, right? But we saw that it was necessary. Like, what kind of experiences people are dealing with in their everyday lives? Is it blocking their access? We, in our surveys, we've in some of the results that we've gotten back from some of these questions, people have related, they had a bad experience at the doctor's office, so they don't go back. A block, that's a challenge to help them. Like, yes, the hospital is there, the doctors are there, but 
they're not going to go because they don't feel like they're seen or valued. If we look at the rates of maternal deaths, for example, yeah. that's because black women and other women of color who interact with medical establishments feel like when they say, hey, I'm a little concerned about how I'm feeling today. I'm not feeling so well. It's dismissed. Their experience is diminished. You don't get to know about that unless there's data, right? There's research that goes into that you can then outwardly share. We not only looked at like how we ask our questions, what kind of questions are we asking, our publications, are we bringing equity lens to our publications, how do certain material hardships affect people by race, by ethnicity, by immigration status. One of the things coming from an immigrant family myself, I was like, one of the things that really attracted me to working here was like, wow, they're really getting in depth about what's the immigrant experience here. And while we would like to think that we're very welcoming as a country and we really care about everybody who comes to our shores like the data proves that we don't and children's health watch i feel has been at the forefront of really bringing that experience to the larger public because we're a very patriotic country and we should be but not everyone experiences that in the same way and we really need to make sure like we bring their voices to the fore so i've been really that's one of the things that impressed me about um working here. Other things that we're trying to center equity around, just even simply our website. Coming onto our website and seeing that our commitment to it, like we worked together as a team along with our advisory board and we had different subgroups that worked on changing our mission statement. We decided to put together a vision statement. We decided to put together a value statement because we really wanted to basically put our mouth where our money is. But we really wanted to make it clear, like we are an organization that's committed to this. And here's the things that we're doing to show that this is such a priority for us. So over the last four years, I know I've deviated a little bit, but starting with that intention, we've realized like, we even internally have work to do, yeah. right? We're making more of a concerted effort. How do we hire? How do we budgets. do our budgets exactly? like? <laughs> Being a nonprofit organization, we need every penny that we can get, but we made a conscious decision like, okay, are we going to take money from a potential funder that is doing harm in the community? Yes, we want those dollars, but can we sleep at night taking that money? And that means sometimes we're a little lean <laughs> because we want to make sure that we're upholding equity in everything that we do and really demonstrating that. And that's not always easy to do, but we're really committed to that. And so in every way that we possibly can, we're trying to hold ourselves accountable. Yeah. I think we do a fantastic job holding policymakers accountable, but we also hold ourselves accountable, which I really respect and appreciate. Because you no, know, there's that phrase, it starts at home, right? Mm -hmm. It really starts at work home too. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, I think the equity series that this podcast is a part of started in part to our commitment to calling out equity. and. We started like in the winter of 2019, just about. So this is before COVID was a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and before those horrific police brutality and other racially driven interactions with murders. the police and everything. Murders, yes, yeah, the, let's just call it what they really are. And we were there even before then because we could see that, yeah. see how racism and discrimination has impact on people's lives. and. Much to what you were saying, Dr. Frank, people didn't know that hunger was a problem in this country until we started sounding the alarm. Mm -hmm. I think much in the same way, much of the country was like, oh, I didn't even realize we had a racism problem. Really? Like, <laughs> yeah. people are actually discriminated against because 
they look different or they come from a different country or they have an accent or something and I think or it was a, that's like a history in the past right. it's not a problem now now and right. it still is we see that in our data all the time people of color experiencing higher rates of hunger higher rates of housing displacement higher just it all it there's no area in our everyday lives where race racism and discrimination doesn't have impact and we see that in our data yeah where i don't think that again much to what dr frank said about people not knowing about hunger i think people knew that racism existed but like what you said oh that's a past problem that was in the 60s we resolved that and everything and all of that yeah. we have mlk day now and yeah. we have had a black president which is something that i've heard a lot i miss you obama but but it still is a problem but having discussions like this honest open uh, discussions like this can help yeah. alleviate, yeah. make change, which is what I think all of us really want. Yeah. Yes. I wonder, Megan, if you could talk a little bit um, about some of the work we've been doing recently, and for, certainly China and anyone in Billy Sterling too, on those really structural issues that, yeah. that Sterling's getting. So it's not just the interpersonal piece, which I feel like people are like, oh, who's past that? But I think there's, I think we've been working on that for a long time, but really the sort of underlying policy part of it that yeah. creates those problems. Yeah, I think it's such a good question, and in a lot of ways I was reflecting on both what Debbie and Diana was saying and Serlin. We started thinking it was just the data, right? And we thought, oh, we'll just produce really good data and that'll change. And then it was like, oh shoot, it really is not just the data. It's data and it's storytelling and it's building political will. And then I think really as we've been trying to think about it, we've always had a mission to help young children and their families and really reflecting on what are the root causes of why certain kids get certain opportunities and certain kids don't. Yep. And so as we reflect and evolve and think about what are those root causes, we have to talk about advancing racial health equity. We can't not look at that in the mirror. Yep. And so then it really is, okay, let's try and really just scientifically describing it and then coming up with policies that advance health equity around particularly race. What are those? How did they play out? And how are we thoughtful about them? Because I do think that's where we've really opened up who gets to be the researcher. And the most recent Cairo Center where we did mixed methods and we really lifted up the voices, I think we really are evolving as a research network, both in terms of what are the things we're advocating for and how we're thoughtful about those and who are we advocating with. And it really is with and really trying to think about that. And I think all of that to me feels like a very natural evolution. Mm -hmm. What are the ways in which we continue to have families and children at our center, but we're continuing to learn and we are a learning network. How do we continue to evolve in those ways? Because I think the first 25 years have been incredible in that evolution and it's really great to reflect back, but I, we know the work's not done. So what's the next 25 years need to look like in order to really get at those structural issues that drive the social differences that are the result of the health inequities? And you really brought housing to the forefront because because um, you'd work for healthcare for homeless. Uh, I was trying to explain to people how we got into this. And I, I said, well, we got mad about our patients. I was mad about my underweight patients, and you were mad about your homeless patients. And they were the same patients. And yeah. then we found they were the same baby. We've certainly become, we've developed a lot of different kinds of expertise that I didn't even know we were missing. Administrative fundraising, policy, developing relationships with 
legislators, state and national. When we started, I think it, it just, just happened. If somebody said, will you give a talk? I'll say, sure, I give a talk. Will you talk to my staff about this? Sure, I'll talk to your staff about it. They're about the same age as my med students. And uh, they keep getting younger, yeah. And uh, so there was no kind of intentional. It was like, yeah. way opens, we do it. But clearly we've gotten much more organized and clear-headed and effective on to get the message across. Yeah. I do think having to the front lines approach of both collecting data from the front lines and listening to families and then some of us still being clinicians listening to our families, I do feel like a lot of our science has evolved in ways where families tell us, they don't say I have food insecurity, they say I'm juggling three bills right now. Okay. I'm juggling my rent bill, I'm juggling the food bill, and I'm juggling the heat bill. And so to an extent, we have to study the intersectionality. We're, if we're being authentic, we need to understand that. I do think it's really interesting as we've started to evolve to move beyond policies that we've traditionally studied to thinking about things like earned income tax credit or child tax credit and looking at what are the ways in which those help families be able to juggle their bills. And so those are the ways in which we want to get to that hardship-free concept because nobody should have to juggle the bills. And that stress and that tax of time and energy and other things is so real. And so how do we start to lift up new ways to address what are really these root cause problems? And really, I think it is it starts with listening to the people we interview. And, and I people. think that, exactly. And I think that's a piece of where we're getting at. The policy design is so critical. We know that families need cash, but how are we going to design it to make sure that it also gets to all the families of color, all the black and brown and immigrant families, in addition to the white families. That we aren't just opening a door for some people, but we're opening a door for all. And I think was another thing that's that's like a nice thing too, because something you said I think is really meaningful, thinking about, I think another really unique piece of our model is the intergenerational viewpoint we've had from the get-go of thinking about the family unit, not just the child in isolation, which I think a lot of research has done, and I think it's shifted broadly in the past several years, but I think that was another place, both on the policy side and on the, the science side, that. We've been really unique in thinking about that in a flow. I don't know if any of you want yeah. to comment on that. Or. I would just add, I think, again, part of our evolution was these hard learnings that food insecurity doesn't exist in isolation and that babies don't exist in isolation either. And, you know, what some might have characterized as mission creep. Or what's exciting to you about where we're going next? It's bringing along the next generation at all level to um, care about this stuff, do this work, uh, and of all backgrounds too. That's not our only mission by a long way, but this is um, a boat we can invite people on and teach them how to run it. <laughs> and, uh, but that, while at the same time we're pulling babies out of the water and talking to senators. So for me, that's, it's not in a st- instead of, in addition to, it's part of our obligation. Yeah, yeah I think it, it, just to build off of that, I think we've often talked about this kind of downstream, upstream, right? We're, we are documenting the downstream effects of policy decisions that people made intentionally or unintentionally, right? And so then to an extent, what are our roles in describing the upstream solutions? and being able to really thoughtfully get at those structural determinants. And I do think we don't have to give the talk anymore connecting food insecurity and health or housing insecurity and health. 
I think the next layer is what do you really do about it in order to change it on scale, right? Not just the individual level where you write a food pantry prescription or connecting someone to a benefit, but are we really changing people's life trajectory on the long term? And I think that's a real burgeoning field of both education and research is what's the policy level research? And that is a unique connector where we have been really at the forefront and continue to be at the forefront to build that next generation, to build that next kind of methodology. We haven't stopped putting our hands on babies. Yeah. So I think what's unique about us is not, there are lots of wonderful policy wonks in the world. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of terrific uh, child epidemiology researchers, mm -hmm. but it's that we're connecting them constantly in real time. I agree. It's unusual. Yeah, I think for the next period of time, I think about how do we stay true to where we started because the need is, if anything, even more illuminated by the work we've done and that the, uh, the volume of kids that we hope to reach is increasing, is more. That focus on very young children and what supports them and their families. That focus on bringing clinical care into policy discussions from our own lived experiences with families. And then I think it's our challenge, uh, as it has been and we've talked about in the last 25 years, is to change, is to be able to use new technologies. Who would have predicted we'd be doing a podcast? <laughs> Nobody. Nobody. We were probably writing yeah, with lead pen, a quill, a quill. I think we're using. Yeah. We, and you know who? I think to be able to take advantage of the state of knowledge in every way, in communication, in methodology, in connecting people, and just in every way to do the work that we've always said is our lantern yeah i was thinking about this question like on my way in and had some time to jot down i think all of us like thinking about the future what will it look like yeah and i think for me it's that we continue the fight to dismantle racism and discrimination in all its forms and through our research and policy but honestly in a weird way i hope <laughs> that there won't be a need for a children's health yeah. launch in 25 <laughs> years that's, like, that's, that's always it's, I think it's like my sincere hope that we won't really be needed because policies will just naturally be equitable, right? And policymakers will really be thoughtful about that. Like, how is this policy going to hurt? How is it going to help? And, and who can tell us? Exactly. I just feel like looking at our current times, I, I feel that truth and fact <laughs> and science has, have become like four letter words in a lot of ways. And so it's, I really hope that we just get to a point where I envision a future where that won't be diminished, right? Mm -hmm. Or it won't yeah. be disputed. Like truth will be valued <laughs> and upheld. And I want you so much to continue to be at the forefront of that, like sharing what's really going on the ground. like. Here are like, we're not just pulling this stuff out of thin air. Like <laughs> totally. these are human yeah. beings that we yeah, are interviewing, that we are talking to. And yeah. we really want people to focus on that. I think it was wonderful at the top of the podcast, Dr. Frank, where you were saying like, it's not just numbers, it's the people yeah. behind the numbers. And we have, that's what this research is. It's not just percentages and numbers and formulas and all that. It's, it's humans, right? Yeah. Everyday people like ourselves who are talking to. So I really hope that whoever's watching in this podcast that you take a 
gander over to our website <laughs> and really read like our policy, policy briefs and our publications because it, again, it's not just about the numbers. These are stories that we're sharing with you. As an advocate, when I started out, if you told people stories, they said, yeah, but that's an anecdote. And if you read them your numbers and p-values, which I had coming out of my ears, mm -hmm. they fell asleep. Yes. So if, if, it's the both <laughs> and. You've, both got to, you've got to use both <laughs> right. if you're going to try to yeah. get through to leaders. Yeah. And Sterling, I love your vision and your goal. Yeah. But I got to say, we got a lot of work to do yeah. to get yeah. there. I would think this. We've also, fundraising, I used to just say the Lord will provide, and it did. And that's what happened. But now <laughs> it's become much more organized. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Come with us on the journey. Yes. Come with us on the journey. Yeah. And that's been good. That was a wonderful note. And on any last words before we wrap up, anything we miss that you want to say? Mackenzie Scott, if you happen to see this. Yeah. I would say, I sometimes will say we stand on the shoulders of giants. And so I definitely think that we've been blessed to have an amazing set of founders and those of us that been lucky enough to join in the last decade, we see a bright future ahead. Thank you. Thank you all Thanks. very much. Thanks. Yay! Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. We want to thank Marilyn Mayerhoff and Sam Feldman for their generous and ongoing support of our equity series and today's podcast. We also want to shout out Record Company staff for their assistance with producing it. If you enjoyed episode one, make sure to stay up to date on our website and keep a lookout for parts two and three of our series, Children's Health Watch, Advancing Research to Transform Policy, and Children's Health Watch, Policy Responses to Advanced Equity, coming later this year. Children's Health Watch is committed to calling out policies and structures that exacerbate health and economic inequities, particularly for immigrant families and people of color. And we continue to advance inclusive, equitable policy solutions rooted in our cutting edge research. Children's Health Watch not only shares evidence, but diligently builds relationships with policymakers, advocates, community groups, and families to turn evidence into equitable policies that uplift and support not only those who need it the most, but all of us. So if you believe that equitable policies should be a given and not an exception, then please take this next important step and donate by going to childrenshealthwatch.org donate. We'll also drop a link in the show notes. You can be assured that your gift is spurring much-needed change. And don't just take our word for it. Listen to our distinguished advisory board member, Charlotte Gorla-Ritchie, share why you should give to Children's Health Watch today. On the subject of support, today Children's Health Watch needs yours. I serve on the Children's Health Watch advisory board, and in that role, and also as a former state legislator, I've seen how valuable research and data are in shaping state and national policies, whether we're talking about expanding nutrition assistance or making improvements to the child tax credit or earned income tax credit or increasing access to affordable housing. These policies support the health and economic stability of families who need them most. This is the focus of Children's Health Watch, to get relevant credible research and data into the hands of people who will make the right decisions 
the decisions that directly impact the health and well-being of children and their families. But it costs money to produce accurate, reliable research and data. And as Children's Health Watch is holding this, their one and only fundraiser for the year, we have an opportunity to support this very impactful work. So if you believe that equitable policies should be a given and not an exception, then please take this next important step. Go to www.childrenshealthwatch.org donate and give as generously as you can today. Your gift will help in the effort to combat poverty and promote equity, and it will be wisely utilized and very much appreciated. Thank you.